You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. I have a question for you. Are you going on toward perfection? Well, are you? Hopefully. <laughs> That's a scary question, isn't it? That's a little bit unnerving. When I was 50, when I was 50, and that would be 10 years ago in June. Yeah. I asked the Lord to give me a word to spend the rest of my life on. It was a bold ask. But I had a sense that I'd spent the first half of my life living the gospel of, you know, Waffle House, sort of scattered, smothered, and covered. And and maybe it was time to refocus or to focus (laughs) or to focus right this moment. In fact, I wanted to make the most of the second half. And I really did believe when I was 50 that I was about halfway done. My grandmother lived to be 96. Her sister lived to be 102. I had another of her sisters who lived to be 98. I think I'm about halfway done. So I began to search my spirit and ask questions like, which spiritual gifts have risen to the surface and which ones have run their course? These are actually decent questions to ask. You may want to ask them of yourself. Which spiritual gifts have come to the surface in this season of my life and which ones have run their course? What's the message that speaks most deeply to me and through me? What places and people do I want to pour into? So I spent a lot of time thinking about this over a good amount of time. And then I wrote this prayer in my journal. I just went back last week and found it so we could hear it together. And you may want to pray this prayer with me or listen as I pray it. I wrote this prayer. Lord, remind me of the message you've given me, the one that makes me tremble when I speak it. Remind me, Holy Spirit, of what it's like to have your power flowing through me when I speak. So I'm operating on your power, not mine. I want to preach Christ. I want to make disciples. I want to be a witness to the church. I want you to remember that line. I want to be a witness to the church. Or today, given this message, I might say, I want to be watchable. But not my will or wants yours, God. Your will and wants only. And then I ask this question of God. What is my message? What's the thing you gave me to do? And almost immediately it came to me and I wrote it. And what I wrote was personal and social holiness. Holiness is the call. It's the word over my life. And and holiness, but not the way we tend to think about holiness. It's not a life engineered by a bunch of rules. You know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't dance with the ones who do. Not that. I think it's tempting to do just that with holiness, to get, every, to get very serious about it and, and forget that freedom and lightness are the hallmarks of a holy life. But, but that's not it. Holiness is not a call to get all the fun sucked out of life. It is a call to the good life, and you should write that down. Holiness is a call to the good life. So it's not restrictive. It's not fun sapping. It's, a, it's the ultimate form of freedom. It calls out the best in us and causes us when we live it well to glorify God. It is art, not engineering, and it's the good life. Kevin Watson has a book, um, and I'm going to just, 
I want to recommend it. If you want to have something to read along as we, we're, this is the first of a series. We're going to be in holiness for several weeks, and this is a great book. It's called Perfect Love. Kevin Watson is the same one who wrote the book about class meetings and band meetings, so he's, he's Wesleyan all the way through. And this one is about entire sanctification. I'm going to leave it right here in case somebody wants to look at it afterwards. Kevin says in that book, Holy Love, he says, this is Methodism's big idea. Salvation brings not only forgiveness and pardon, but also empowerment and freedom to live a faithful and holy life entirely and right now. This is our grand deposit, the treasure God has entrusted to the particular people called Methodist. And that's what we hope to inspire in each other over the next few weeks. I, I'm, I'm, this, this is an introduction to maybe Methodism, but really holiness as a biblical principle, as a Wesleyan distinctive, and as an art form. So, okay, how many in here grew up Methodist? How many of you grew up Methodist? So not that many of you. Yeah, <laughs> Most of us didn't grow up, and, and at least in this church, didn't grow up in this tradition. So you may, have a, you may not have a strong connection with John Wesley's stories or the ways he permanently shaped the Christian landscape. But John and Charles Wesley were brothers. They lived in the 1700s. Charles Wesley was the r real artist between them, and John Wesley was the engineer of a movement. <laughs> uh, Charles Wesley wrote hymns. I just, just wild guess. If you were here at the first service, you don't have to guess. Um, how many hymns do you think Charles Wesley wrote? Just guess. Over a thousand. Over two thousand. We're getting there. Six thousand hymns. Six thousand hymns. That's amazing, isn't it? You know a few of them. <laughs> Charles Wesley was the was the, the hymn writer. John Wesley was the theologian and the systems thinker. They were both pastor's kids, but their mom is the one who really discipled them. John especially seemed to have a strong hunger for a deeper life of faith. And his understanding of salvation was broader and deeper than just getting saved. And when he talked about it, he used terms like Christian perfection and personal and social holiness. Think, think when, you, when you hear that, think inner, uh, journey inward and then journey outward. Going deep with God going um, out into the world. And so over time, he developed his understanding of what um, we now call entire sanctification. So think of Wesley as just a practical theologian who offered some concepts to the Christian conversation that have been very influential over the last three centuries. And when I say very influential, I mean really influential. There are over a billion, that's with a B, over a billion people, Christians in the world today, alive in the world today, who can trace their spiritual lineage back to the Wesleyan movement. Over a billion. Total Christian um, population, according to Barna, is somewhere around 2.5 billion. So a lot of people can thank uh, John Wesley for the way he phrased this whole understanding of grace, faith, and holiness of heart and life. 
In fact, Wesley would say that this doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian perfection is, is Methodism's whole reason for being. That's the goal. A few months before he died, Wesley wrote this in a letter to Robert Carr Brackenberry. He wrote this, this doctrine, entire sanctification, is the grand depositum which God has lodged with the people called Methodist. And for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. What Wesley meant, Kevin Watson says this, is that God has entrusted Methodism with something of great worth and importance, and it was given to us to pass on. It's our unique contribution to the body of Christ, the doctrine and the life of entire sanctification. To be holy as God is. To be holy because God is. So here's how Kevin Watson defines that doctrine of entire sanctification. He says, entire sanctification is the doctrine that defines Methodism's audacious optimism that the grace of God saves us entirely to the uttermost. And so Wesley would ask his pastors before they were ordained if they intended to be saved entirely to the uttermost. He had a list of 19 questions. Methodists to to this day still use those questions when people are ordained that he asked every pastor. The first uh, four of them deal with entire sanctification. The first one is kind of the jumping off point. The next three go take you to the deep end. But the first one is this, have you faith in Christ? In other words, what would it take for you to actually engage your faith, to actually have to, to use your faith rather than just your gifts or your common sense or your intelligence. What would give you, get you moving in the power of the Spirit, not by sight, but by faith? That was the first question. The second one, are you going on to, toward perfection? Wesley jumps from faith directly into the deep end of sanctification. And this question is not about whether we've reached it or even if we can. The question is... Are our lives pointed in that direction? That's a scary question. Are you going on to perfection? Luke Leitner is part of our community now. Luke's mother, Sandra, was the first female pastor I ever met. And I remember the day we were driving down Washington Road, and I, wasn't, I had not yet answered this call. She was a Southern Baptist who had become a United Methodist, but she was ordained a Southern Baptist and became United Methodist. And she... Um, she told me, she said we were on the, on the um, road one day together doing something. I don't even remember what it was. And she said, do you know that they ask you if you're planning to be perfect in this life? And I said, ooh, no, I didn't know that. What is that? What did you do when they asked you that? And she said, well, I just put my hand behind my uh, back, crossed my fingers and said, yes. <laughs> I can understand. Like, I don't know if I can do this. But when, but when Wesley asks, if you're going on to perfection, he's not asking, are you, are you planning for all your behavior, for every move you make to be perfect? He's just asking if you're heading in the direction of a holy and perfect God. Because frankly, it's not my biggest concern whether you believe in the doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian perfection or not. I just want to say to you, if you're not heading in that direction, you will never get there. <clears throat> the third question defines what makes perfection biblical. Do you expect to be made perfect how? In love in this life. That's the key. 
So now he wants to know if we really mean this. I mean, seriously, are you going someplace spiritually? Do you actually expect to get there? Perfect in love, is that your intention? To be so ruthlessly opposed to stagnation in our life with Christ that we continually press on toward the prize of perfect love. Because holiness of, or, or Christian perfection or entire sanctification, however you want to term it, they all basically mean the same thing, is ultimately about love. So the messages in this series that we're embarking on today will come from that great line in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what Jewish people call the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Jesus added the word mind to it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then Jesus said a second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second half of the story. And then Wesley asks, no, seriously, are you earnestly striving after it? Which sounds a little intimidating and pushy, doesn't it? And not very fun. Earnestly striving sounds like legalism or self-effort. Everything we're trying to get away from, right? Yeah. And actually, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, is the one who gets us started on understanding how earnestly striving towards sanctification becomes freedom. It's, It's actually the opposite of legalism. So I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 26, and we're going to hear from Paul. The best way to engage the message is with a Bible, something to write on, something to write with. When we get to Acts chapter 26, Paul's on trial for preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's on, it's a civil trial, not a religious one, not a church trial. And, and sort of like Jesus, when he was on trial, these, these um, civil leaders don't really know what to do with him. So they just keep passing him from person to person. Because sure, maybe what he's saying is grating or irritating, but it doesn't rise to the level of, 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 of the death sentence. So eventually, Paul ends up in the presence of King, King Agrippa, King of Judah. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul got earnestly striving. He confirmed to the strictest sect of his religion. He lived as a Pharisee, earnestly striving to keep every single law. And there were hundreds of those laws. This is a place where our spiritual mothers and fathers got stuck. They got off track. 
It isn't that they didn't have love and fear for the Lord. You know, it's, it's not that. It's that over time, they got more interested in the law than in the lawgiver. So from our earliest history, our people have mishandled this gift of holiness. We, we make it more interesting for engineers than artists, carefully carving it into hundreds or, or countless rules to memorize and master. We turn an abstract work of immeasurable beauty into a blueprint. Do these, the religious elite would say, and, and, and we will call you holy, which is a lie. Because without love, the active ingredient in God's art of holiness, all the right behavior in the world won't get you there. God is love. So to be holy as God is holy is to love as God loves. I want to say a side note here, just in case if there are any engineers in the room. I love engineers. Thank God for engineers. Engineers are why we have air conditioning in this room right now. It's why the building isn't falling down on us. I'm jealous of the brains of engineers. I am the opposite of a systems thinker. A good engineer keeps us safe. A bad one and you're watching your building burn. Engineers are great. But the Christian life is not meant to be engineered. Any more than an engineer is meant to make mud pies instead of analyzing and building complex systems that make things work. Our faith is not an engineered life that keeps us from sinning, but the very, create, the very creative joy, the life, the very creative art of enjoying life as God has designed it. So when John Wesley asks, are you, are you earnestly striving? We're not being asked to channel our inner perfectionist. Instead, we are being given permission to keep trying, knowing it's going to be messy sometimes. Come on, friends. We're going to miss a lot of shots. We're going to need a lot of do-overs. And the way I do it is not the way you need to do it, not necessarily. The glue that holds us all together in all of our diversity is in, in, on the journey is love. It's love. I mean, stop and think for a minute. Look around the room. How unlikely is it that all of us would be sitting in the same room together? <laughs> Pretty unlikely. But for the love of Jesus. But for the love of Jesus. That's what the Pharisees were missing. Theirs was all law, no love. Paul's life was a testament to that kind of bitter, unforgiving, bad religion. Look at verse 9. I too was convinced. This is Paul talking. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, And when they, I, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put into prison, oh, excuse me, let me start over. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's a hard heart. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them, I even hunted them down on foreign cities. In one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa... As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. To kick against the goads, that's a weird thing for Jesus to say. That's Jesus talking right there. But Paul would have understood it. Evidently, it was a thing people said in his day. In a farming world, a goad was a long, sharp stick that a farmer used to get an ox to go in the direction you wanted him to go while they were plowing. You just jab him in the legs. And I guess an ornery ox would kick back when they got jabbed. But of course, kicking doesn't help an ox. The farmer doesn't stop plowing just because you kick. So that phrase came to be used to talk about anyone who resisted something you're not supposed to resist or who kicked against something when you're kicking would just frustrate you more. And for Paul, this was Jesus telling him he was resisting something he ought not resist. Kicking against Jesus just creates more personal pain. Jesus said to Paul, this is hard for you. Which isn't to say that sometimes we don't do good spiritual things that are hard, but that sometimes we make it harder than it has to be. I don't know. Maybe the difference is frustration. It's one thing to do something hard, but feel the, feel the good of it, the, the stretch of it. It's another thing to do something hard only to be chronically frustrated. That's kicking against the goats. Verse 15 this is Jesus and, and Paul on the road to Damascus, remember? And Jesus has just said, it's got to be hard for you, Paul, doing what you're doing. And, and Paul says, then I asked, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, get up and stand on your feet. <laughs> I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open up their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and to place among those, listen to this, and to place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's a big line. Write that down. We are sanctified by faith in Jesus. That's the difference between earnest striving that leads to love and earnest striving that leads to frustration. It's faith in Jesus. So do you have faith in Jesus? That's the first question Wesley asked his pastors. Do you remember? Yeah, pastors. Not children going through confirmation. Pastors, spiritual leaders. And the first question he asks is, do you have faith in Jesus? <laughs> I think it's because Wesley knew human nature. He knew that even the best among us can fake it in life and ministry and do a lot of damage in the process. As much as we like to trust that every person who expresses a call is full of faith and passion for Jesus, experience tells us there are far too many stories of burned out pastors drowning in crises of their own making years into their ministry. Faith in Christ is not a gimme for men and women who are in spiritual leadership, and it's not a gimme for the rest of us either, even if we're sitting in church. So what about you? Have you faith in Christ? Faith says that whether I understand or don't all the details, I will begin to follow and let assurance come as it will. 
Faith is where sanctification begins on the journey with Jesus. Have you faith in Christ? It doesn't mean we have answers for every theological intricacy. I mean, Jesus is telling Paul this while Paul is on the way to persecute more Christians. Paul was not a finished product when he's face down in the dirt. <laughs> I don't even recognize the person talking to me. He's not, he's not a finished product at that moment. And God is speaking into his life through Jesus Christ saying, no, actually, you're a mess in this moment. But you're going to be a leader among my people. I can see what you don't see. So faith is not being a finished product. Faith is just saying, as Paul said, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's faith. Faith is the life of Christ living itself out in me. It's not passively waiting for things to change without me having to do anything or before I start doing anything. I want you to read this again. Read this together. Faith is the life of Christ living itself out in me. You should write that down. In fact, the, the, the Bible defines faith as movement. James taught that faith without works is dead. So faith for a Methodist is lived out at the intersection of personal holiness, defined as spiritual discipline, and social holiness, which is loving faithfulness in community. When we talk about holiness, that's what we're after. The resurrected Jesus tells Paul that happens as we keep our eyes on Jesus, who calls us to cling not to the form of religion, but to the power of it, the spirit of it, the art of it. Look at verse 19. Paul is still talking. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached. I want you to underline this whole sentence if you've got your Bible out. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In my margin, next to that line, I wrote sanctification. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the, the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise again from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, another government guy in the room, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> the best. I love that. <laughs> your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I want that to catch on as a thing we say around here. When we look at each other, give each other the side eye, mm, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Maybe you are. Right there, Paul describes how sanctific sanctification works. He boils it down to the simplest steps. Sanctification, according to Paul, repent, turn to God, demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. That's the pathway to, to faith. Repent, 
turn to God, demonstrate your repentance by how you live. That's how you respond to Christ's offer of salvation. I want to say this. Last week, I, um, I offered anybody who is ready to make that happen in your life today the opportunity to pick up a book called How Jesus Saves. This part, this, tells what your half is. This tells about what Jesus does in that process. So if today is your day to make that choice, I want to be able to hand you one of these before you leave the room. When you do that, repent, turn to God, demonstrate your repentance by how you live, sometimes you will look insane to people. And sometimes you will feel insane yourself. You'll wonder why you're bothering. You'll find it hard some days to decide whether you are earnestly striving or just insane. Are you insane? Or are you earnestly striving? How do you know if you're actually pursuing holiness or just, you know, doing the stuff? What's the marker? I think that's a great question. I don't have all the answers today. We're going to keep plowing around inside this question for the next few weeks. But I have a theory about where it starts. D.A. Carson wrote a book called From the Resurrection to His Return. And in it, he tells a story of um, when he was a university student. He was, I think, in graduate school. And um, he said that he and another student decided that they were going to... Um, that they were going to do a Bible study and they were going to invite two or three other people together to do it with them. They didn't want to invite a bunch of people. They really didn't want to be outnumbered, but they ended up with three other people. And, um, and that was all they were going to do, just them and three people doing this Bible study. But by week four, there were 16 people in the room and they were all non-believers, all of them. Carson said they would just ask these questions. He had no idea how to answer. He was way out of his league, but he had a friend named Dave who was really sharp and really evangelistic and really strong as a follower of Jesus. And so he decided to take two of the worst cases, or the most challenging, not worst, most challenging cases, to, to Dave. And so he, they, they go to, they make an appointment, they go see Dave, and um, Dave's just this, he sounds like Dave is just this kind of bigger than life guy, and he's plowing his way around the room when they come in, and he gives them some coffee and he and he sits down in front of them with all this intensity of this person of deep faith and he and he looks at the first guy and he says why have you come and the student said well you know I think university is just a great place to to look at different points of view around different things and and so I thought while I was here doing that with my academics I should do that with religion too and so I've read a little bit about Buddhism and I have a friend who's an, is a, a Muslim and I plan to talk to him and, and and you know I heard about this Bible study and so I thought I'd just come and find out a little bit more about Christianity too that's why I'm here Dave looked at him for a few minutes and he said I don't have time for you. And the guy was like, what? <laughs> I beg your pardon? And he said, look, I, I can loan you some books on world religions. I can show you how I understand how Christianity fits into all of this, why I think biblical Christianity is true. But you're just playing around. You don't really care about these things. You're just goofing off. I'm a graduate student myself. I don't have time. I do not have the hours at my disposal to, to engage in endless discussions with people who are just playing around. 
So then he turned to the second guy, and he said, why did you come? And the guy said, I come from a home that you people call liberal. We go to the United Church, and we don't believe in things like the literal resurrection of Jesus. I mean, give me a break. The deity of Christ, that's a bit much. But my home is a good home. My parents love my sister and me. We're really close family. We worship God. We do good in the community. What do you think you've got that we don't have? And Carson said, it seemed like two or three minutes, Dave just stared at him. And then he said, watch me. And the guy said, what? And he said, watch me. I have an extra bed. You can come live here. I'll take care of all your food. You go to your classes, do whatever you have to do, but watch me. You watch me when I get up and when I interact with people, what I say, what moves me, what I live for, what I want in life. You watch me for the rest of the semester, and then you tell me at the end of it whether or not there's a difference. The guy didn't take him up literally, but he did start to watch Dave. They began to meet together, and the Lord drew that guy in. And today, Carson said, whenever he wrote this, he's serving as a medical missionary. So D.A. Carson asks at the end of this story, do you ever say to a young Christian, do you want to know what Christianity is like? Watch me. If you never do, you're unbiblical. I mean, Paul said it to King Agrippa at the end of this whole conversation with him in chapter 26. He said, verse 29, I hope you become what I am except for the chains. Take some confidence to say something like that. Not arrogance, but spiritual confidence. I got to tell you, I had to sit back in my chair when I had this question pop into my head. Are you watchable? When that happened to me last week. It's like, whoa, am I watchable? Am I confident enough in what I have as a pastor to be able to say to someone else, watch how I do it? I mean, yeah, you can ask me how I do Bible study or how I pray or how all that's working in my life. You can come to me and I'll counsel you on stuff, but, but am I confident enough in how I live my life day in, day out, boring day in after boring day out, that I can say to you with confidence, watch me. Watch how I do this. Let me show you how to be a working per person and parent who is going hard after holiness. Not because I'm all that, but because Jesus is. The end game of holiness is to have a life worth watching. So are you watchable? I'm going to ask you to stand. just makes me think most of our lives we're watching the wrong things man and I'm I am the chief wrong watcher I would walk into a worship service anywhere anytime any day and judge them by what's on the screen how well they've done that how tight everything is how sharp the preacher is 
miss, totally miss the call of God to be there all the way through worshiping. Or I can go to my family and just be completely unwatchable. <laughs> Somehow think that I'm ex that part of my life is exempt. So I wonder this, three things. I mean, Paul said it. It's pretty simple. Repent, turn to God, and then begin to demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. I wonder if there's somebody in this room who really needs to start there. Have you faith in Christ? Are you ready to repent, to turn to God? And then begin to demonstrate that repentance by the way you change your life. Are you willing to make that step? And if you're one of those who's willing to make that step, I'd really like to talk to you before the service is over today. Maybe for some others in this room, the question is, oh man, am I watchable? Probably not. Am I, am I doing that as an act of you know, false humility? I just don't want to say I'm watchable. Huh? You know, Paul was, he said that a lot in the New Testament. You know, I, I would that you would all be just like I am. Paul said that. That's not arrogance. That's confidence that the life in Christ that we're called to actually works. It's the good life. Are you either practicing false humility or are you just not practicing your faith? And then there's a third one. Who or what are you watching? Are you watching the right thing? Or is there somebody, or actually, do you need to go to somebody today and say, you know, I've been watching you and I want what you have. I want what you have. And I'd like to ask you to walk with me a ways. So bow your head and close your eyes. You know where you are in this scenario. You know where you are in this invitation. Whether you are starting out on a journey or starting back on a journey, Lord, I'm ready to repent. I am ready to lay everything out. This has not been the good life for me. This has been too much striving. This has been frustration. I have been kicking against the goads, God. I need to turn from this and begin to follow you. That's somebody in this room right now. Somebody is able to pray this prayer this morning. I want to talk to you before you leave. Somebody else in this room is, you know, that, that whole thing about being watch, watchable, that feels like pressure to me. Or it chafes against my poor sense of self. Lord, I need to deal with whatever I'm feeling right now. I need to I need to follow this out to the place where I really do business with whether or not I think this is actually the good life. That's somebody in this room. And there's somebody in this room who really wants to watch how somebody else is doing it. You've seen them. You know who it is. And today's your day to go gather up the courage and ask. Let me watch. Matthew in the message version of Matthew, Jesus talks about, you know, are you, are you tired? Are you burned out on religion? He says, come to me. Come to me, and I will teach you how to lead, to, to live freely and lightly. We're going to worship right now. 
There's a place here at the front for you if you'd like to come and let Jesus deal with you. You can come and kneel. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I'll be right over here in the side. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.